are listening to Audio Fanfic Podcast. 5 a.m. By Cat Eyes 224 on AO3. Reading Mature. Watching the glowing red minutes silently slide from 4.32 into 4.33, Dana sighs and finally gives up on sleep. She throws the thin blue comforter from her body and shivers as the chill of her room lights a signal fire of goosebumps over her bare skin. In the dark, she pulls on a pair of sweatpants, tugs her oversized University of Maryland sweatshirt on over her sports bra, and slips her feet into her cross trainers. She is careful to move as silently as possible, so as to not wake her sleeping roommate. Dana scuffles from her bedroom into the tiny dual-sink bathroom adjacent to her dorm, with her shoelaces still untied, and her toothbrush hanging out of her mouth. Leaving the light off, she brushes her teeth in the dark and spits the foam of her toothpaste into the sink, swiping a band for her hair from the top drawer, pulling it into a ponytail, Dana catches sight of the ghost of herself in the mirror as she passes and she pauses, momentarily caught off guard. She's still getting used to the darker auburn she decided wouldn't be as attention-grabbing as the fiery copper of her natural hair color. In the limped orange light that filters in through the window of the bathroom, she now shares with three other recruits. It looks much darker than she had imagined. She purses her lips at her reflection and turns away. The room of her dorm snicks shut behind her, and she opts to duck down the stairwell rather than take the elevator. Her sneakers squeak and echo above and below her, syncopating with her quickly accelerating heart rate. Five floors later, Dana pushes the bar on the double doors, throwing her slight weight into them, and the building heaves her into the blue-black chill of pre-dawn. The pavement is almost icy, still wet from the rain the night before, and she breathes the smell of damp concrete and late autumn Christmas deep into her lungs as she stretches, pulls the sleep from her limbs. She turns away from the building that is to be her home for the next 21 weeks and walks briskly towards the track a few hundred yards behind the dorms. The toes of her sneakers dampen as she traipses through the grass by the time she reaches the dirt, her socks are squelching in her shoes. Dana starts out to a slow jog, timing her footfalls with her breathing. She decides she's only doing a mile and a half this morning, just enough to get her blood and adrenaline flowing. Today is the second day of the FBI Academy. She moved into her dorm yesterday, exchanging tentative smiles and backstories with her new roommate, Annalisa Cervantes. Anna had been a cop for almost 10 years in Miami when she decided the FBI was the right move for her. Dana had tried not to be intimidated by Anna's war stories of drug dealers gone wrong and shootouts with cartel foot soldiers. Anna's dark eyebrows had skyrocketed when Dana had described her own previous experience. Meat wagon brigade, huh? Remembering the way Anna had chuckled with a shake of her head, her dark curls bouncing around her face. Dana picks up the pace. Before long, she's sucking air and her lungs are burning. Rounding her fourth lap, Dana grits her teeth and pushes away the memory of Anna's polite but obvious incredulity. Dana knows she's only considered part of the cleanup crew by her roommate and the other law enforcement officers like her. 
She shows up only when the danger has passed and the scene has long since been secured. While her fellow recruits may have been harvested from agencies around the country, gifted with brawn and the advantage of time on the street, Dana hopes what she lacks in experience and physical strength, she more than makes up for in brains and brute determination. So, here she is. She pumps her legs harder as she rounds, a turn and completes her first mile, her breath foggy in front of her on each exhale. In the east, the pale coral of the morning is slowly leaching the ink of the night from the sky. Red skies in the morning. A bad omen, she thinks, if she believed in those kinds of things. Dana slows for a moment, captivated by the raw glory of daybreak, when her breath hitches, a sudden stitch piercing between her third and fourth ribs on her fifth lap. The pain subsides as she comes to a stop and bends over. Dana stretches for her toes, her body thrumming. She decides to head back and shower, not wanting to overexert herself on her first official day of training. She takes the elevator up this time, punching the button for the fifth floor. When she steps off and pulls out the key to her dorm, she can hear other women bumping around in their rooms, readying themselves for the day. A thrill rushes through her, and she feels a sudden sense of kinship with and pride in the women behind these doors. Women who are brave enough to pit themselves against men two and three times their size. Women who are going to hold themselves to the same standard and excellence that their male counterparts hold themselves to. Women who, because of their sex, are going to find themselves already at a disadvantage, outnumbered and underestimated in the competitive boys club of an elite federal law enforcement agency. Dana guesses that Anna is in the shower as she pushes into their dorm and collapses on her bed. Her room empty and Anna's sheets already tucked in with military precision. Groaning, Dana glances at the clock on her desk and notices that the red light on her phone is blinking, indicating a voicemail. Dana's brow wrinkles as she reaches for the phone. Still prone on her bed, dialing in the passcode she set up just yesterday. Who would have called so early and then taken the time to leave a message? Hardly anyone knows she's here. The automated voice delivering the date and time of the call, which was left just after 5 a.m. this morning, pauses before the silence gives way to a deep baritone that stills the blood in Dana's veins. She immediately sits up and her back ramrods straight. Dana, it's your father. I know that today is a big day for you and... Ahab pauses. And I just wanted you to know that I'll be praying for you. Make me proud, Starbuck. Dana's breath snags in her chest as the call ends abruptly, and the automated system takes over, telling her to press 7 to repeat the message, 8 to save, or 9 to erase. A flare of anger nearly causes her to slam the phone back down as she stares at the numbers on the keypad. So typical of her father, to sweep in and demand excellence while maintaining his distance. And this after he'd made it abundantly clear that he was less than thrilled with her decision to join the FBI, told her in no uncertain terms that she was going to be wasting both her talents and his hard-earned money. Are you still there? The automated system prompts her again to make a decision. Her finger hovers over the nine button before she sighs. She hits the seven and listens to the message again and again. Make him proud, he demands. Make me proud. Dana is about to push eight to save the message when Anna comes back into their room with a towel wrapped around her lithe, dark body. 
She throws a huge, toothy smile at Dana. So, Dana, are you ready to make these fuckers our bitches today? Or what? Dana stares at the phone a few seconds longer before she glances up at her roommate. She wants to do this. She is going to do this. But not to prove anything to Ahab. She needs to do this for herself. Hitting the nine without any more hesitation, Dana places the phone back in its cradle. She grabs her own towel and toiletry bag and ducks into the still, steamy bathroom, throwing a smile over her shoulder. Anna, these boys aren't going to know what hit them. A sharp, instinctive rap ricochets through the early morning silence in her apartment. She'd have been startled had she not been expecting him. Scully bends to grab her overnight bag from where it's waiting near her front door hoisting it over her shoulder and grabbing for the handle at the same time. When the door swings open, she stares awkwardly up at her partner and blinking slowly into the harsh light of her hallway. Morning, Scully. She grimaces, stifling the urge to shush him before stepping out and turning to lock her door. You're far too chipper for 5 a.m., Mulder, she says, half-whispering. From behind his back, Mulder procures a styrofoam cup of coffee and a white pastry bag, and holds both out to her. Well, you know what they say. The early bird gets the worm. Scully double-checks her front door to make sure it's locked and reaches to take the coffee, shaking her head at the pre-offered food. You know, that saying was debunked in recent study out of Britain. Scientists fitted more than a thousand birds with tracking devices and found that while many birds were in fact early risers, they were more likely to eat in the afternoon as to avoid predation. The earlier they ate, the slower they were, and therefore, the more vulnerable. During her screed, Mulder is nodding silently, reaching into the bag and ripping the entire top off a chocolate chip banana muffin before devouring half of it in one bite. And while the early bird may indeed eventually get the worm, what about the poor early worm, Scully continues. The ghost of a smile softens Mulder's face around his bulging cheek as he takes her overnight bag from her and follows her back down the hallway towards her building's front door. We never hear about him, do we? He's just going about his wormy business, trying to get his wormy errands done early, and some jerk with an alarm clock comes along and ruins his day. Scully takes a tentative sip from the plastic lid as Mulder holds the front door open for her, and she ducks under his long arm. Mmm, Mulder, you nailed it. How did you know how I take my coffee? I pay attention, he mumbles, around his next big bite of muffin top. It's been three months. Three months since their fledgling case in Belfair, Oregon, since they'd stood laughing like idiots in a graveyard in the rain. She has to admit, this assignment has been a lot more challenging than anything she's ever done in her life. With each new case, she finds herself slipping further down the rabbit hole, wrapped up completely in Mulder's strange world. He is her beguiling and begrudging tour guide, dispensing morsels of information like breadcrumbs, leading her ever deeper into the darkness he's been exploring on his own for some time. To his credit, he hasn't seemed to mind the company. Mulder loads her luggage into the back of his sedan, opens her car door for her. It's late summer, but the bite in the early morning air is enough to make Scully's teeth chatter, and she glances back over her shoulder at her building wondering if she should run back for her heavier trench coat. Before she has time to talk herself into it, Mulder shrugs off his suit jacket and drapes it over her shoulders. 
Instantly, the cold is shuddered by the fine wool of his coat. A smaller, warmer fire ignites just as subtly, low in her belly, whenever she's surrounded by the sharp, clean smell of him. She douses that feeling quickly. There be monsters, she warns herself, and she purses her lips at him and moves to hand it back to him. Mulder, no, I'm fine. You're shivering. I'll be fine. He backs away and walks around to the driver's side of the car. I know you will be. Until you are, just wear it. Huffing, Scully ducks into the passenger seat and slams the door, letting the bright curtain of her hair obscure the radiant blush that she feels rising in her cheeks. Mulder, oblivious, throws the pastry bag onto the floorboard near her feet and starts the car, pulling away from the curb and out onto the empty street. Do I get to wear your class ring too? Scully asks, hoping the slight waver in her voice isn't going to give her away. Mulder quirks a smile that Scully returns. She avoids the playful light in his eyes by immediately rooting around for the bag and pulling out the bottom half of the muffin, still wrapped in the waxy paper. Scully rolls her eyes dramatically as she unwraps what's left, nibbling with exaggerated care at the muffin's remnants. Despite the air of constant exasperation she puts on with him, she is still admittedly somewhat starstruck by Spooky Mulder, the myth of him having not been quite rubbed away by her begrudging familiarity with the man beneath. But there are moments... Moments when his humanity, his fallibility, shows through. He eats the tops off muffins and leaves the ass ends for her. Heathen. At the red light, Mulder fiddles with the radio dials until he stumbles onto an AM station that will give him traffic reports, and he glances at her sidelong. Consider yourself pinned, Agent Scully, Mulder says, watching as she finishes up the ass end of his muffin. Their eyes lock, and she freezes when he reaches out with his index finger for her lip, carefully dusting away a stray muffin crumb that's stuck in her lipstick. Scully clears her throat. Thanks. He shrugs, bringing his eyes back to the road as the light turns green and sips from his own coffee. Go back to sleep. I'll wake you when we're outside of Boston. Scully tries not to make a show of snuggling deeper into the fabric of his coat. Soon, the sound of the tires on the pavement and the drone of the day's news and the jostle of Mulder's car pull her quietly back into sleep. There are two states of her being of late. Scully is either so exhausted that she can barely keep her eyes open, or she's so far beyond fatigued that she's wide awake, haunted by the things she'll never get to see or do or accomplish. Tonight, she's been tossing and turning so long that she's almost certain she will never be able to untangle her legs from her sheets. Rolling over for what feels like the thousandth time, she wonders whether sleep may very well elude her for the rest of what's left of her life. She finally gives up just before 5 a.m., kicking her legs free with a frustrated groan. She wraps her softest robe around herself and traipses out into the kitchen to put the kettle on. The ritual of twilight tea has become an unlikely source of comfort for her during the early morning hours, warming her from the inside out as it laps at all the icy places inside her. That's the other thing. She can't seem to get warm. Scully stares at the clock on the wall and blinks back the tears that threaten any time 
she gives herself more than a few seconds to sit still. The second hand winds its way around and around the face of her kitchen clock. She follows it and waits for the kettle to sing. By the time it starts to bubble and shriek, Scully exhales and counts herself lucky. She's lived another six minutes. Her Irish breakfast tea is seeping when she shuffles over to her couch, settling in and throwing an afghan over her legs. The same striped couch where just last week, Eddie Van Blunt almost had Mulder's way with her. Pushing that depressing thought and all of its myriad implications aside, Scully stares at the black screen of her television for several long moments before she realizes with a sigh that her remote is all the way over there, across the room, an insurmountable distance, and all she wants to do is curl into a ball and fade away. She has just about talked herself into getting up and crossing the room to pick up the remote. When her home phone startles her, her tea sloshing over the side of her mug. Luckily, her cordless is right next to her, unlike her traitor of a remote. Hello? Scully, hey, did I wake you? Mulder. No, you didn't. A heavy beat of silence, giving Scully another few minutes to curse her remote as she swipes with her tongue at the rim of her mug to lap up the spilt drops of tea before they fall. The ceramic lip of it is screaming hot, and she winces as her tongue registers the singe a split second too late. Why not? It's not even five yet. I haven't been sleeping well lately, Scully snaps, and she is almost sorry at the bitterness in her voice, if she had the energy to feel things like regret anymore. And since when do you care what time it is? You usually have no trouble dragging me out of bed at all hours, Mulder. Silence. Scully sips angrily at her too hot tea scalding her mouth as she waits him out. Jesus, the things he doesn't say could fill volumes these days. Doesn't he realize she's running out of time? Finally, he clears his throat. Yeah, Scully, about that. I'm sorry. Oh, no. You're sorry? Please, Mulder, don't do this. For, uh, taking up so much of your time. Scully sighs. Please, not now, she thinks. Not this early in the morning. Not ever. She regrets ever giving form to the idea that her time left is finite. She forgets how clairvoyant he can be, especially when it comes to her. She mentally sends him an image of herself hoisting him off the cross he's nailed himself to and kicking his sorry ass. Wishes she had the strength to actually do it. As it is, the remote is still so very far away. And she's tired. She's so tired of his bullshit martyr complex, especially when none of this is his fault. She barely has the energy to blame the circumstances that led her to this point, or to blame fate, or God, let alone him. She sighs again, glancing at the clock on her VCR. This isn't a nine-to-five job, Mulder. I knew that when I joined the Bureau. Yeah, but it could have been. It should have been. It should have been a little bit more forgiving, he murmurs. I should have been a little bit more forgiving, he doesn't say. His voice is gravel and silk. The river water over Stone's tone that he slips into whatever he's contemplating the mysteries of the universe. Scully thinks, morbidly, that he only sounds like that now because he's realized that she'll probably die before he has a chance to untangle her. She'll be the one mystery of his life that will remain unsolved. She tucks in a breath and holds it, 
feeling how tired she is in every cell of her being. God, but she is so tired. World-weary. She could fall asleep right here, tucked into the corner of her couch, and never wake up again. What do you want, Mulder? Oh, right. The, uh, the, uh, tox results came back from our latest victim, and I wanted to go over them with you. And that couldn't have waited until 8 a.m., when I'll see you at the office? More silence. Mulder, you there? Yeah, yeah. No, that's fine. You're right. Of course. I'm sorry. I'll just see you at the office in a few hours then. The desperation that thickens his voice, the unspoken questions that thread through and between his actual words, they're almost enough to break her heart. Oh. How much longer do they have before he can't just call her at any hour to talk about toxicology results, before there won't be another 8 a.m. morning scully as he tosses a file at her and they're off chasing the next mystery? Oh. No, Mulder, it's okay. I'm up anyway. Tell me about the tox results. Anything interesting? Scully asks, tucking herself into an even tighter ball in the corner of her couch, covering her toes with the afghan. Mulder is quiet for only a moment, but it's a long enough moment, and she knows him well enough that she can see him actually close his eyes in gratitude, sending up a silent prayer to whatever deity he thinks might be listening that she even picked up the phone in the first place. Yeah, so I think there's something there, instead of methadone, like the local PD suspected. Our results show that the unsub was taking Quiptopin, which is commonly prescribed for Bipolar disorder, Mulder. That's huge. That means there's a good chance the victim's brother may have been involved. I know, exactly as I suspected, he responds, excitement creeping into his voice. Scully smiles softly, sips her tea, and listens to him as his mind unspools. As he makes more of those intuitive leaps and bounds, he's always been inexplicably capable of making. And she wonders just how much harder this is going to be for him without her. Sadly, she forgives him again for his presumption, for calling her so early, for all of it, because she knows that he's been wondering the same thing. She is trying not to feel guilty. This isn't the first time they've had sex. It's not even their second time. It's their fourth, not that she's counting. If that time he went down on her in their office after hours last week counts. But this is the first time they've come close to waking up together. Scully had jolted awake with a gasp just after 4.45 a.m. Mulder's arm heavy and slung across her waist, anchoring her to his bed. She'd been sticky with sweat, the heat radiating off his body nearly scorching her. As she'd lain there, trying to regain control of her galloping heart rate by breathing deeply, she thought the proverbial frog in a pot of gradually warming water, how it doesn't even realize it's being boiled alive until it's far too late. And she had to get out of there. So she bolted. She dressed as quickly and quietly as possible, stealing out of his room like a thief, glad for once of the white noise of his apartment that camouflaged her hasty exit. The bathroom faucets endless dripping, the burbling hum of his fish tank, the rain that started to fall outside. She'd just finished buttoning up her coat when she threw a glance at him just lying there, long limbs askew at ridiculous cultish angles. His gorgeous pouty lower lip was even poutier in his sleep. He continued to snore softly. Damn it. 
She couldn't just leave him. Not like this. Not after last night. Not when they'd come this close to actually waking up together in the same bed. It's just not right. That's the guilty refrain that's coursing through her now as she scrounges silently through his kitchen to find a leftover napkin from last night's takeout. She fishes a pen from her purse. M, had to run home to change. See you at work. Her pen pauses above the napkin. She agonizes for a brief moment. What's the protocol here? How does convention dictate that she close this brief little love note to her partner and best friend come lover? Love Dana? Love. Love. She does love him. But Jesus, she doesn't want the first time she expresses it to him to be on a takeout napkin from Thai time. XO Dana? She winces. He thinks she'd been replaced by a shapeshifter. No. To him, she is Scully. And to her, he is Mulder. And to try and shoehorn their first names into this fledgling relationship is a mistake. It reeks of trying too hard. Convention never did become them anyway. She contemplates. Pen pressed into the plump center of her bottom lip. Going somewhere? She jumps, dropping the pen to the counter. Jesus, Mulder. The napkin flutters to the floor. Sorry, didn't mean to scare you. His sleep-scratchy voice hangs in the air between them, weighed down by all the possible meanings behind his words. Scully stoops quickly to pick up the pen and the napkin and glances as he crosses his arms and leans against the doorframe. He's put pajamas back on, thank God. But they're the pale yellow pair that she outwardly makes fun of and secretly loves. They make his skin glow like he's just spent the weekend in the Caribbean instead of the United Kingdom. Her eyes rake over him once, long enough for him to smirk at her in spite of a schoolboy blush that rises in his cheeks. You didn't scare me, Skelly protests. I was just, I was going to head home to change, and I didn't want you to think that I just left to, uh, avoid, you know. Skelly licks her lips and glances up at him. She trails off, twisting the napkin, fiddling with the pin cap. She's a terrible liar. And it's been so long since she's done this. As her heart rate doubles, Scully stifles a ridiculous urge to cry for help. Mulder blinks back at her languidly, his eyebrows lifting an invitation for her to continue digging her own grave. Apparently happy to watch her flounder. Scully purses her lips and rocks back on her heels, immediately defensive. Fine, if this is the game he's going to play. Mulder, we have to work tomorrow. You mean today? She glares. Yes, today. You know what I meant. I can't very well show up in yesterday's suit. It's, it's wrinkled. Mulder nods, and this time he's the one giving her a once-over. Slow enough that she starts to fidget again. You look fine to me. Mulder. Scully. He's not going to give her an inch. Okay. Okay. She can do this. She takes a deep breath. Look, I still, uh, I need a little bit of time to get used to, she gestures between the two of them, this, whatever this is. A split second flicker of doubt darkens his eyes. And what exactly do you think this is, Scully? She shrugs a shoulder, twirls a pen between her fingers. I've never been good at this part, Mulder. Mulder chews on his lower lip for a long moment, contemplative. A car alarm starts screaming down the street before the owner chirps it off. 
He clears his throat. What part are we at, Scully? A sudden but distinctive shift happens in the space that those words take up between them. Scully finds herself in an unlikely position of being the one person in the room who's certain of the way the other one feels. It's a heady feeling, she realizes, to be the one wielding all the power. As Mulder now starts fidgeting and shuffling one bare foot back and forth. Well, in for a penny. I was debating whether or not to write Love Dana on this napkin, she says, settling it in the pen down by her purse on the kitchen counter. Mulder's head snaps up. His eyes soften as he smiles, incredulous. Love, that sounds pretty serious. It is pretty serious. Mulder nods slowly. He takes a step into the kitchen. Well, Dana, you, uh, you better go home and change then. I guess I'll see you at the office. Scully blinks up at him through lowered lashes, grateful. She closes the distance between them by half. I do, you know. He steps forward again. Even with his bare feet and her heels on, he towers over. You do what? He breathes. He's insufferable when he's like this, when he wants her to admit that he's been right all along, while she's been waiting for the evidence to pan out. But they've always done their best work when they met in the middle even if he had to push her to get her to meet him halfway. She looks up at him and takes a breath. And for a pound, I love you. His eyes searches her as his hand reaches for hers, twining their fingers together. You okay with that, he asks. He's so earnest it makes her heart break. She pretends to think hard for a moment, and he cracks a smile, chuckling softly. Scully sobers. I will be. Thank you for giving me some time. His face descends and she rises up on her tiptoes. The kiss is chaste and lovely, and he pulls away much too soon. With his forehead pressed against hers, he whispers, Get out of here. I'll see you at the office in a few hours. Scully turns to go, gathering up her belongings. Before she leaves, she uncaps the pen still next to her purse, scribbles something on the napkin and presses it into his palm as she kisses his cheek. His front door had just shut behind her when he finally glances down at the napkin. Forever yours, it reads. Mulder smiles. It is 4.47 a.m., and they've made it exactly 270.8 miles before Mulder pulls into a vacant parking lot of a small church off of Interstate 81, just west of Wytheville. Bethlehem Lutheran is a quaint clump of brick buildings, bathed orange in the glow of a few century street lamps. Scully chuckles darkly, and Mulder spares a glance over at her as he navigates the car. Bethlehem, how very fitting. It's enough to make her want to eat a bullet. They're not seeking refuge as anxious parents-to-be of the future savior of the world. There may well be an end later, eventually, whenever they get wherever it is they're going. They won't be turned away unless the FBI put out a bolo with their names and faces attached. Even if they are regulated to a stable, she is not swollen with child. There is no baby to be had here. Her womb is woefully, desperately empty. That ship, such as it was, has sailed. 
Scully's heart clenches painfully as she carries the metaphor even further. The three wise men will not be coming. They are dead and buried in Arlington National Cemetery. She should probably tell Mulder. He'd made mention of trying to call them when they first jumped onto the 95 South, and she hadn't had the heart to tell him then. Dawn is still an hour or more off. Mulder pulls into the darkened corner of the parking lot, hidden from view of the highway by a long row of hedges, and throws the SUV into park. He'd stripped off his hideous orange jumpsuit a hundred miles ago, shedding it into the back seat and then ditching it in a dumpster behind a gas station in Lexington. Scully had ducked into a 24-hour Walmart across the street and paid cash for a three-pack of Hanes t-shirts and a pair of Levi's while he waited outside in the car. Scully had taken a moment to relieve her bladder in the filthy bathroom, staring at herself in the mirror. Graffiti had been etched into the walls of the stalls behind her, crudely explicit scrawlings of the random pair of tits or an ejaculating penis. Backwards curses she'd read in the mirror over her shoulder. Scully had nearly vomited, staring at the reflections she scarcely recognized, and dizzy from the combination of fear and exhaustion and freneticism that had marked the last few weeks of her life. She allowed herself to wonder in that moment, as she swayed unsteadily under the fluorescent lights, what the hell she was thinking, following him into the unknown yet again, fleeing her life, her family, her career. She's an FBI agent and a lapsed Catholic. This self-imposed exile and excommunication will mean she's damned on all counts, in this life and the next. Maybe it was always going to come to this. Their ferocious devotion to one another, to the exclusion of all else, beyond reason or sanity. It was always going to be what did them in. Scully's bloodshot eyes had come to rest on a deeply etched John 832 and the mirror just above her. The glass was warped and bent beyond the graffiti, as if the person responsible had carved it using every ounce of their strength. It's a verse Scully knows well, one of Mulder's favorites. He'd parroted it back to her ad nauseum over the last decade, his voice sometimes dripping with sarcasm and sometimes tenderly reassuring. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The echo of that verse throbs in Scully's veins now as Mulder turns the key in the ignition and kills the engine. Scully's jaw muscles work as she feels him study her. The air between them is thick and getting heavier by the minute, the longer they allow words to go unspoken. Their daguerreotyped profiles are a study in shadow and ambient streetlight. She still hasn't looked at him. She knows what he wants to ask. Praise he won't ask it. But Mulder can never leave his scabs alone, or hers. Scully, she flinches at the sadness that creaks his voice, at the pity. It's not what she wants. It's never been what she wants. He sighs heavily. Scully, we should probably talk about Will. She's launched herself at him, navigating her body over the center console before he can finish his sentence. Her mouth is plundering his, shutting him up, stealing all the questions from his lips before he has a chance to ask them. And he, damn him, he eagerly forgets them whatever he'd been hoping she might answer. She can't remember his nimble fingers working the buttons of her top free of their moorings. But he must have done because before she knows it, her blouse is gone, pushed off of her shoulders, and he's face to face with her breasts, almost a full cup size larger than he probably remembers. In the dark, he struggles with a non-existent front clasp, 
then reaches around and finds wide straps equipped with far more hooks than her old brawls ever had. Scully grunts, frustrated. She pulls his hands back up and around to feel by Braille that there are clasps further up on either front strap that he can open. Realization must hit him because he pulls his hands back like he's touched fire. She's wearing a nursing brawl. It's all she had left that still fit her engorged breasts comfortably. They're leaking now, after he's thumbed them into painfully hard peaks. The sweet smell of breast milk soaking into the thick cotton material and leaving two dark spots where her nipples are. It's been two weeks. Two weeks since she gave her son up. She's read that it can take that long for her milk to dry up. Scully grinds down a molder to distract him, hoping she's hurting him. She sees stars when the hard length of him hits her in exactly the right spot as she shamelessly ruts on him through their jeans. He's trying like hell to capture her mouth with his own, but she keeps turning her head away. Scully keeps her eyes squeezed shut. She still can't look at him. Hasn't looked at him for a hundred miles. Now, when it's all she can do to not see William's heavy-lidded gaze in his father's face. God damn it, she thinks, as she nearly sobs, as he takes one of her nipples into his mouth and sucks. She's been so close to having them both. If she'd only held on for just a few weeks longer. Mulder works himself free of his jeans and his boxers. He struggles with the button and the zipper on her pants and somehow manages to push them past her knees. Why couldn't she just hold on? Why? The head of Mulder's penis nudges her opening. She's already slick with her arousal. She should have held on. He sheathes himself within the tight clinch of her body and they both gasp. One of them whimpers. God, it's been so long. She can't move. She's paralyzed above him. Lets him shift beneath her. Throws her head back as his hips roll. Two weeks. She gave him up just two weeks ago. Mulder's fingers wrap around her slender hips and he pulls her roughly against him on each upward thrust. The jarring contact with his pelvis bone is just this side of painful. She couldn't have waited two weeks. Mulder jams a hand down between them and starts to struggle her clit with his thumb. Why didn't she hold on? Let go, Mulder rasps in her ear, sensing her distance, nipping at the pulse point of her neck. Hold on, her heart whispers traitorously. Scully, just let go. You should have held on. It's too much. Everything about what her life has become is about to be is too much. Her orgasm, which seconds before had seemed imminent, evaporates. Her sobs shatter the humid silence of the cab of the SUV. Mulder immediately stills, frames her face with his hands. He gathers her into his arms and tucks her under his chin. He somehow manages to slip out of her and get himself tucked back into his jeans as he cradles her in his lap and rocks her gently back and forth. It's okay, Scully, he soothes, stroking the top of her head and crooning lowly into her ear. It's okay. I'm here. I'm here. You're here, Scully thinks, but he's not. As she swallows and chokes back another rack of sobs, he gazes lasers into the church's bulletin board, glowing brightly across the parking lot, which heralds the following message, a holdover for Mother's Day this past Sunday. Motherhood. All love begins and ends there. Scully weeps openly. She doesn't remember falling into an uneasy sleep 
or being gently settled into the passenger seat and buckled in. Mulder keeps driving. She's forgotten how quiet it can be out here. Nature can be its own kind of riot, especially when the nearest human neighbors are almost two miles away. But as she blinks awake in that heavy, silent space between midnight and morning, she has to strain to hear anything. The crickets had stopped chirping hours ago. Bullfrogs hadn't croaked since just after dusk. And it must be too early for the loons and the morning doves to be singing from their melancholy repertoires. Mulder shifts in the bed next to her. His snores cease for just a moment before they start up again after he settles. In the blue-gray light that filters in through gauzy curtains, she picked out herself years ago. Scully finally hears the lone whippoorwill cry out. She pulls the duvet up to her chin and turns into the curve of Mulder's body, fitting herself into the spaces he's always seems to leave for her. She crawled into bed with him last night, skin damp from a shower and long red hair curled into a bun on top of her head. He'd been set up in bed, the sheet draping his lower body, responding to a text from William, and stark naked. So was she. Both of them were giddy, revitalized and drunk on two bottles of Malbec she'd brought over to celebrate that they discovered that their son was alive and healthy and normal. Well, as normal as a kid could be with the two of them contributing to his genetic makeup. She'd climbed into Mulder's lap, carefully removed his reading glasses and put them on the nightstand. Shaking her head so that her hair tumbled loose from its top knot, she'd taken his phone from him, thrown it over her shoulder to land somewhere behind them in a pile of blankets at the foot of the bed, and kissed his half-hearted protests away. Kissed him until they were both breathless and shifting their lower bodies more meaningfully. Kissed him until his fingers had snagged in her wet, uncombed hair as she sank down on top of him. Fuck, he'd said through clenched teeth. That's the idea. Your hair. Mulder tugged his fingers through the tangles, and she hummed in appreciation. He chuckled. No, I mean your hair. I'm stuck. Hmm. Then I have you right where I want you. He smiled and pulled her down as he gently thrust up. No kidding. They'd been doing this again, pretending it like it wasn't monumental, that she'd been spending more and more time at their house, steadfastly ignoring how important it was, what it meant that she was making a conscious effort to be caught up in his orbit instead of resisting the ever-present gravitational pull he had on her. Just like they had the first time around. Well, there were a few exceptions. This time her hair was longer, and they had a son together. Do you miss it, Scully asks. Oh yeah, I've missed it. Scully slowed the pace, she'd said initially, batting Mulder's hand away when he grabbed for her hips to get her to speed up again. No, I mean my shorter hair, how I used to wear it when we first met. Do you miss it? Oh, that. Yeah, I do actually, he said, stilling and looking up at her thoughtfully. I like the long hair I do, but it reminds me of a darker time, I guess, when it really was just the two of us against the world. You only grew it out like that after we were on the lamb. Scully had tilted and started moving, rolling over him again and again, relentless as the tides. Wasn't exactly like we could stop for a haircut or a shave, she said, stroking his chin. You trying to tell me you missed the beard? Mulder had joked, and she laughed as she shook her head. Mulder grew serious. 
You look so professional and dangerous with a razor sharp bob all those years ago. Like you'd fucking kill anyone who looked at you the wrong way and wouldn't think twice about it, including me. She smiled and clenched her inner muscles around him. I would have. Why do you think it took me seven years to make a move? He responded, his large hands spanning her waist as he torqued his hips up. They hadn't done a lot of talking after that. Scully is brought back to the present when Mulder turns towards her, throwing an arm out over her and pulling her closer to him. She thinks back to a time when this nearness had frightened her. To need someone so much had terrified her. The whippoorwill calls out again, splitting the silence of the early morning. How things change, she thinks, as she pulls his arm tighter, linking their fingers. Whenever Dana had stood at the curb as a girl, sobbing as the Scully family boxed up another one of their many houses, pulling up stakes to move to yet another new place, she cried about leaving their friends and their schools and their lives. Her father would kneel down, look her in the eye and say, the world breaks everyone. And afterward, many are strong at the broken places. As the morning starts to peek in, casting the shadows of their bedroom into shades of lavender, Scully knows now that her father was right. She and Mulder are proof of it. They are stronger now for all the many places they've been broken. She exhales and feels a tentative peace she hopes will hold. If you like this story and would like to contribute, you can do so by going to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash audio fanfic pod. As a patron, you are granted early access to one new story of your choosing per month. Thank you for listening. And remember, the stories are out there.